So hello, we're in the fourth episodes of the Angage podcast, and the previous three episodes were uh, philosophy, but my goal from the beginning was actually to have a mix between uh, philosophy and psychology, uh, but that turned out to be a bit more difficult because uh, psychologists seem to be harder to get a hold of, maybe they're busier. Um, but so we finally have a very good guest to have the first non-philosophical uh, podcast, and I'm very excited. So for those that are not uh, familiar, so my guest is uh, Stephen Sloman, and he has a PhD in psychology from Stanford, and then he did his postdoc in Michigan, and he's a cognitive science, so he studies how people think, uh, how thinking works, and also he is particularly interested in how thinking isn't just in your head and it's distributed across uh, the social sphere and the community. And he has authored uh, a very good book, The Knowledge Illusion, and we'll talk a bit about that as well. Um, so I'll, be, I'll start the podcast uh, actually not uh, with your book, although we'll for sure get there, uh, because I do like cognitive science uh, quite a bit, although I'm not uh, super familiar with it. And uh, I have a few questions about uh, the field in general that maybe you could answer, uh, and then we go a bit more specific uh, into your work. So what I would like to start is I've seen you uh, define yourself as a computational uh, cognitive, cognitive science. And from my understanding, um, that was kind of like the standard view when in the cognitive revolution of the 50s after behaviorism, uh, which was kind of like inspired by Turing and Fodor and stuff like that, of like the, the simple hypothesis. Uh, but then as the fields progressed and closer to um, 80s and 90s, uh, it started, cognitive science, from my understanding, started to pay more attention to dynamical systems and also it started to become more worried about embodied cognition inspired by the phenomenologists. Uh, and so the, the kind of like the view of cognition as a simple computer seemed to kind of, um, it's still very useful and for, and for sure uh, cognition works that way in some degree, but it, it seemed uh, short-sighted, uh, maybe, maybe I would say. So I'd like to, to see you uh, explain a bit on First of all, how does cognitive science stand as a field now in terms of computational models versus non-computational models? Uh, and, and how do you personally view other approaches that are not computational? Uh, sure, well, let me just first thank you for having me, Tiago. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, even though we're not talking about the book, first thing, I do want to point out that it was co-authored with right, Phil right. Fernbach. My apologies. So there are, there are two of us. Um, yeah, you're asking uh, an interesting and complex question that requires, uh, you know, some detail about the history of cognitive science. Um, so when I use the word, I guess you got that description, computational cognitive scientist, from my web page or some biography I have somewhere. Um, and I do call myself that way. Many of my colleagues would laugh because I'm much less computational than a lot of cognitive scientists are, and I've sort of become less and less computational over time. But what I'm, I'm using the word computational in a way that I think is faithful to cognitive science, 
but um, in a much more general way than you seem to be implying. Right, so I don't mean simply like a computer or simply like a traditional von Neumann architecture computer, you know, with with a register and some random access memory that that um, gets fed into you know, re, uh, read and written by the central processor. I'm using the term computational to kind of mean any sort of formal mathematical or um, computer science, computer language sort of model of, of how the mind works. So on one hand, you're absolutely right that very few cognitive scientists take the old traditional metaphor of the computer as a serious model of mind. Um, but you got to remember that not only have our models of mind changed, but computers have also changed. And, and computers these days often have many processors. There are some which have billions of processors, you know, each of which is uh, not terribly sophisticated and all of them are interconnected. And that kind of computer may not be a terrible model of mind, right? Certainly might not be a terrible model of the brain if you think that, you know, brains consist of billions of relatively stupid processors, namely neurons, um, that are interconnected in such a way that sophisticated processing um, is an emergent property from their interconnections. Um, although some people actually think neurons themselves are pretty smart. But the point is that there are a variety of models of computation and there are a variety of models in cognitive science. The old standard view of, you know, a central processor surrounded by little memory devices um, actually still exists in a sense. Um, and it even exists in the popular imagination. You know, people often think about working memory and the stores that working memory interacts with in order to get stuff done, in order to maintain information in the short term, in order to process things um, in the short term. That notion is very much alive. Certainly in cognitive neuroscience, there are a lot of people who are studying working memory. You know, there are some people that think it's an empty concept, but but that is very much a holdover from the traditional view of uh, of, of computation. You're absolutely right. There there are a variety of paradigms now really have nothing to do with that. One I've already hinted at the notion that we can model the mind um, as a kind of neural network that involves billions of of relatively ignorant processors that are interconnected in such a way that you get um, you know, rather deep insights, certainly memory, um, pattern recognition processes that emerge from these interactions. Uh, today in computer science, you would call that a deep learning machine, right? And those machines are incredibly effective in what, what they, they're able to do. Um, but then there are a variety of other paradigms that I would call computational, like, 
you know, a common one these days in cognitive science is the Bayesian paradigm, where, which is a sort of probabilistic model of cognitive processing um, that attempts to describe what people do as sort of a mirror of the environment. The environment is uncertain. It's best described as a probability distribution. And you can think of the mind as in some sense mirroring that and reasoning over that. So there's obviously a lot more to be said. Right, I think right. I've already answered your question at some length. Yeah, for um, sure. But yeah, there, so. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's very fair. Uh, I appreciate the answer. And uh, I'm partially biased, uh, maybe, uh, because um, the, the knowledge that I have of cognitive science, uh, first of all, it's by um, uh, John Ravakey, which is a cognitive science in Canada. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it with him. Uh, he works on mainly cognitive sides of wisdom, but he really got me interested in the field. Uh, and then I got a textbook uh, to learn more about it. And the textbook kind of goes to like, first of all, it has a historical uh, approach to cognitive science and then kind of like dif dif um, divisions, uh, kind of the paradigms uh, into like sections of cognitive science history. And so maybe the the concept that I have of computational is a bit more uh, more crude and older and more narrow than the one you're using. Um, so another thing that I would like to talk about the field, and I promise this is the last question. I'm sorry that I'm using you for my <laughs> cognitive science curiosities, um, which is I'm I'm more familiar with uh, the opinion from within neuroscientists on this topic because uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in psychedelics and I've attended a, a few conferences in London about it. And uh, it, it has a whole bunch of, of, of topics on the conference. Um, but the, the, the scientific part is what I'm most uh, concerned with, it, especially when it connects to mental health and psychiatry, stuff like that. And almost all the science on it is from a neuroscientific, neuroscientific perspective. So what is the brain is doing? Who, what parts of the brain are talking to? Which parts, etc. And whenever, and often in the Q&A periods, um, when people when people try to ask questions and a lot of times the questions deviate from the talk and they just want to ask a topic they're interested in a lot of times consciousness comes into the into the question and a lot of times the hard problem of consciousness comes into 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 the question and from a neuro from all almost all the neuroscientists that I've seen on that um, when they're approached by that question they usually are divided into one they don't think it's a problem at all. Um, they think it's just a whole conceptual mistake. And so they just, there's that, they just dismiss it. And then there's another group of neuroscientists, which is like, okay, I recognize the problem, but it's not my problem. So my problem is the soft uh, problem of consciousness, which is already hard enough. And I'm gonna focus on neurocorrelates. Uh, and hopefully that explains a bit of consciousness. And if it doesn't, well, too bad. I'm just doing the best I can within my field. Um, so I'm curious about how cognitive science scientists uh, approach this question, especially because it has a, a lot of a more philosophical roots uh, than neuroscience. Um, right. So cognitive science is very broad, and it includes philosophers and computer scientists and linguists, as well as psychologists and anthropologists and others. Um, and you're going to get uh, as many views as uh, uh, on consciousness as there are cognitive scientists. So 
I'm certainly can't speak for the field because mm -hmm. there is no consensual view. Um, there is a small number of people who, who study it and think cognitive science has something to say and, and, and they'll say things like the function of consciousness is to bind the features that uh, we perceive into coherent wholes so that we have a kind of coherent perception of the world. That's one kind of theory of consciousness that you might find, right? Um, there are other theories that have to do with the role of consciousness in inhibiting those things that aren't relevant for our present purposes. So there are people who try to come up with kind of functional descriptions of the role of consciousness. Um, I think I probably represent the majority of cognitive scientists in my attitude, which is uh, something you actually stated. Um, cognitive science, no science is really in a position to say anything of any value about consciousness. You know, science is limited to, um, to claims that could be false, right? That is claims that are empirically verifiable. And claims about consciousness just tend not to fall into that category as, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are these claims about the function of consciousness, but you know, whether it's consciousness per se that's serving those functions or some underlying mechanism that might or might not be related to this phenomenology we have when we're experiencing the world uh, is, I think, a completely open question, right? There's, we just don't have a way of measuring that phenomenology and associating any other um, inferential processes with it. Right. So, yeah, I'm just not entirely sure that consciousness per se as an experience is really open to scientific investigation. And I, you know, I, you can investigate the mind, you can investigate what's required to allow us to think um, and have experiences. You can investigate the brain and, you know, try to say something about what neural processes are necessary in order for the brain itself to function and in order to support cognitive functions. Um, and a lot of those investigations presumably have something to do with our experience. It's just impossible to know which do and which don't, right? In the sense that there has to be some functioning process that's going on uh, inside our skulls, but to what degree particular processes support the phenomenology of experience, our awareness, as opposed to having other functional properties or maybe even just being epiphenomenal, right? Maybe just be a byproduct of other processing. We don't have a way to make those distinctions. Um, so, you know, it's certainly meaningful to say, well, 
is psychedelic experience uh, good for us and what's it like and what are the neural processes that are involved in um, how does it change our psyches does it uh, improve our mental health or deteriorate it or what i mean these are all good questions um how they relate to consciousness in my mind is a completely open question right yeah it's it's a, it's a very tricky problem and uh and there's the there's the problem of um, the the function, and also a problem of of correlation versus causality if it's epiphenomenal or not. Uh, and then there's a, the additional problem of how consciousness uh, came to be, which is even trickier, and that lies even more outside of cognitive science. So so yeah, I, I was I was kind of hoping that um, I don't know there was a, a more coherent view, but I guess that's just wishful thinking. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there are lots of open questions. Right, right. More questions than answers. Um, okay, so now let's move on to the to, to your book along with, um, what's what's your, the colleague that you authored with, Philip something? Okay, cool. Um, so I would like to first ex- explain uh, the story of, of how I got uh, your book, because I think it's quite telling of its value and uh it was when i first started to get interest in interested in psychology and what appealed to me the most about psychology was cognitive biases and so uh, i was very interested in in figuring out the world and figuring out what reality is and then i figured out that my own brain was misleading me in apprehending reality and that seemed really important to me i was like holy crap, this is, this, uh, this importance can't not be overstated. And, and so I started reading a lot about it. And I just read books on cognitive science one after the other, which is not a very usual thing to do. Because if you read books about the same topic, there's going to be a lot of overlap. Uh, but to me, I thought it was worth it, because the topic to me was so important that I figured, if I only learn 10% something new with each book, that's worth it of how important it is. But the problem that I had was that with each new book that I read, it wasn't 10%, it was more like 1%. So I wanted to learn more about it, but I was getting very frustrated uh, because it was just the same thing repeated over and over again. Uh, Until I found your book. And at the time I did did not know like your book at all. I didn't even know who or your your colleague were. Uh, I guess I just, the title seemed interesting. It had good reviews, so I just picked it up. Uh, and I was I was really happy when I read it because it allowed me to learn more, which is what I wanted. But it was completely different from all the other books I've ever read about cognitive biases because the bias isn't in our heads. It's on the social sphere. It's in the community. It's 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 in the, the social interaction, and I really appreciated that. And it's it's almost odd because even now, after many years after I've read your book, uh, it's not something that is talked about very often. Uh, and when it's talked about, it's in direct reference generally uh, to to your work. Um, so I find it surprising how, even though cognitive biases have become actually quite quite popular as like pop psychology books and stuff like that, of like getting into rational uh, critical thinking stuff like that, cognitive biases are very popular. But this this community aspect to it, it's very rarely mentioned, which is for me odd and, and disappointing at the same time. Um, so that's how I got into your book, and I'm very glad that I read it. Um, and so maybe you could explain a bit of 
what your book is about. And and uh, you reference often the like the original research of like the people explaining the reasoning for devices like toilets and so forth. And then they, you know, the whole process of ignorance, confidence, etc. So maybe if you could touch a bit upon that and then your book, that would, that would be great. So people can sure. be familiar. So um, the book is about two things. It's about uh, human ignorance and the community of knowledge. So uh, there's a phenomenon originally called the illusion of explanatory depth, um, we refer to it as the illusion of understanding or by the book's title, the knowledge illusion, which is the fact that um, people tend to uh, overestimate how well they understand things, right? So fundamental phenomenon, um, you ask people how well they understand, say, how, how well a ballpoint pen works. And... Uh, people think they understand. So on a one to seven scale, they'll say, well, I understand, you know, four, five, six, there are, they're relatively simple things. I use them all the time. And then we say, uh, okay, explain in as much detail uh, as you can how it works. And what people find is that they can't even begin the explanation. Um, they, they just have very little to say. So then we again say, well, how well do you understand how a ballpoint pen works? And their rating is now lower. In other words, the attempt to explain punctures this illusion they had that they understood things. And that turns out to be true for almost everything, right? Look, we all have our own areas of expertise. And, you know, there, I have friends who make ballpoint pens. And those friends actually do understand how ballpoint pens work, right? And there are certain things that each of us understands really well. But it's a very small set relative to the number of things there are out there. Uh, my colleagues and I did this work with political policies, right? We said, you know, take a policy, take like Obamacare in the U.S. How well do you think you understand how Obamacare works? And people have this sense that they understand it, right? In fact, they even have slogans that they associate with. Uh, and then we say, okay, explain it in as much detail as you can. And it's just shocking how little people have to say. They just don't know. They know almost nothing except the slogan. Um, and so when you then again say, so how well do you understand how it works? Uh, their, their ratings are lower. So people themselves admit that they were living in this illusion of understanding. Okay, so the general idea is that we don't understand the world as well as we think we do. And this is sort of a general observation about cognition, right? That is, if you close your eyes now and um, try, tell, try to think of what the color of your underwear are or what, the, what type of light is hanging in the ceiling above your head, a lot of people who are listening to this uh, podcast are just not going to be able to answer that question. We, we, they just don't know. Because so much of the information around us isn't carried in our heads, but is carried by the world, right? So, you know, how do I know what kind of light is hanging in my room? Well, I can go, look up and I can see it. And there it is. And now I have the answer. Or, you know, I can look under my pants and see what color my underwear are. Right? So the information is available, um, and it's usually just as good that it's available in the world um, as uh, in my head because I can access it. So 
the idea that um, Phil and I are promoting, and to be honest, we were heavily influenced by Frank Kyle, uh, who's a great psychologist at Yale and was the first person to demonstrate the illusion of explanatory depth with his student, uh, Leon Rosenblatt. Um, the idea is that the reason we think we understand things so much better than we do is because we confuse what others know with what we know. So we fail to distinguish the knowledge that's in our heads from the knowledge that's all around us, from the knowledge in particular that's in other people's heads. So, you know, there are people who understand ballpoint pens, and as a result, we have ballpoint pens, and they work. And if ours break, we can fix them or buy a new one, because there are people who specialize in them. And there's not all that much value in distinguishing the knowledge that's in their head from the knowledge that's in our head, as long as we can access that knowledge, right? So as long as we can buy PowerPoint pens or bring it to someone to get fixed, then everything's kosher. And right, there's just uh, no great advantage to being able to do it ourselves, to having the knowledge in our own heads. So the way to think about knowledge is as a community, right? We live in communities and the knowledge we use on a daily basis um, exists in that community. Now, look, I, I appreciate you attributing the ideas to, to us. Um, and I, you know, I, I often <laughs> don't feel like people are reading or paying enough attention to the ideas either. But the fact of the matter is these ideas have been around a long time, right? I mean, you can see them in books, you know, written in, in the 20s by Walter Littman, for instance, um, or even before. Um, and in fact, there's a whole field in philosophy of social epistemology that um, has analyzed at least some of these ideas in quite some detail, right? So in that field is interested in the fact that most of what we know, um, we know by virtue of others' testimony, right? So, like, I know about Slovenia merely because you tell me that it exists and it looks to me like, you know, it's a place with couches and plants and curtains. And I know that basically through testimony because I have no direct knowledge that you're actually in Slovenia, right? I have to... Uh, rely on you for that information. And most of the knowledge we have is like that. So philosophers have certainly studied this at some length. The reaction of cognitive scientists to, to these ideas, which I agree completely are really important. I mean, I hope one thing we can do in while we're speaking is draw out some of the implications of these ideas for politics and education and decision-making and reason, mm -hmm. all the things that they apply to. Um, I, I feel there's been a certain dismissiveness by cognitive scientists. And I think that that is in part, I think there are three reasons for it. One is they don't quite know what to do with the ideas because what they're interested in is what's going on inside the skull. And they just kind of assume that, that everything that matters is going on inside the skull. Uh, because that's what they've always studied, and that's the history of the field. And, and they just don't know what to do with ideas that don't sit comfortably with that. Um, 
I think another reason is that, you know, there is a certain loosey-goosey quality to the notion of a community of knowledge, right? That is, cognitive scientists love computational models. They love to write things down rigorously um, in some kind of mathematical form, if not as a computer program. And the idea doesn't necessarily lend itself to that kind of analysis. There are certain things you can do. There are, you know, social network models that people are interested in. Um, but the other reason is that the fundamental idea is that a lot of cognition does not involve the passing of information, right? So cognitive science is often described as the study of information processing. But the knowledge illusion suggests that there's actually less information processing than we think, right? That a lot of what we do, we do by virtue of information that someone else is processing. We're, we don't even process it. We just kind of get to use the results or gesture towards the information that someone else's testimony provides without ha actually having anything concrete. Right. Yeah, that, that was that was a really good summary, um, and uh, we will definitely get into some more practical uh, consequences of, of of what this means. Uh, something I would like to to show you that I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, but there's a there's a very great quote from Whitehead, uh, which which is really um, really fitting to your book, and, uh, and I logged it here down so I wouldn't mess it up, and it says. Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking of them. And I've been aware of this quote for a long time, but then when, when I was diving a bit deeper into your work before the interview, I was like, this is just perfect. This should be on the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's terrific. I do like that. That's Alfred North Whitehead. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. So I'm curious about, um, I, my apologies if you covered this on the book, because I've read the book a while back and I wanted to go over it again uh, before I talked with you, but I was kind of an idiot and I forgot it's in Portugal and not in Slovenia. <laughs> um, but did you touch on um, the evolutionary origins of the knowledge illusion? Like how, how did this come about and, and the kind of the ancestral environment? Um, we touched on it. I mean, I would say we just touched on it because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a great fan of a lot of evolutionary stories because they, they just feel to me like stories. But, you know, what we point out is that um, it, it's kind of a no-brainer to say that um, organisms evolve th via their ability to act on the environment right? Basically, you want to take resources from the environment and transform the environment so that you're more protected and able to extract resources. Um, and so presumably, cognition evolved as a means of helping that process along. So the purpose of cognition, the evolved purpose of cognition is to support action. And so that's an argument that what cognition is really about is causal reasoning, right? Because it's causal reasoning more than anything that supports action. What's the effect of this action gonna be, right? 
to really support action, you've got to understand the mechanisms by which the world operates so that you can see how your, your actions are going to change things. So having processes of prediction as well as processes of explanation um, are, are that reside in understandings of cause and effect are, are going to be what helps you along. So on one hand, that's the sort of story of evolution. And on the other hand, the fact is the world is immensely complex, unbelievably complex. So you take any, I mean, we've sort of gone through the story a little bit with ballpoint pens, but, you know, take anything you want, uh, you know, pair glasses. There's an infinite amount of complexity to understanding how glasses work, right? Like, where does the glass come from? And what's the molecular structure? And what's the optimal shape? And um, how do you create something that'll sit comfortably on your head? Well, to understand that, you actually have to understand the shape of heads, right? And, and you have to understand it enough that you can make it in an economically um, efficient way. And that requires understanding how much demand there is for it. So how many, what kind of problems do people have with it? So the closer you look at anything, the more complicated it gets, right? This is the history of science. The more we understand, the more open questions there are. Complexity abounds. So cognition is there to support action, but it can't really achieve that because there's too much complexity. It's facing too much complexity. Uh, and, and so the solution is to take advantage of all of the cognition around us. That is all of the knowledge that everybody has so that we can each have our little area of specialty, our little thing that we understand. And that may not cover very much, but when you take that in conjunction with everybody else's knowledge, then you really can do amazing things, right? Like build um, Zoom software that allows you and I to communicate across thousands of, of miles. Right. So first of all, I'd like to say that um, I think in terms of evolutionary psychology, I'm actually a fan of the field and I think it has a lot of useful things to offer. But I think what you said is a very big problem and it's, but I think it's more of a problem when other fields try to take advantage of evolutionary psychology to like add a sprinkle of, of evolution to, to their pet uh, theory. But when, when the discipline is taken by itself, as it, so if you, the, the main topics of evolutionary psychology, in my opinion, are a lot more solid and it's not just so-and-so theories. Like there's a lot of empirical, um, uh, hypothesizing and then testing the hypothesis so if, if you if, if if it's if you value a very like uh popper popperian is that a thing uh, approach to you know philosophy yeah. of science uh um evolutionary psychology does that have to offer but i feel that when other people want to just take it to their fields they just come up with the evolutionary story and that the quality of that degrades a lot so i think it depends a lot on the context of of the field. I think that matters a lot for its quality. Um, so something that I was thinking about and also in respect to this uh, evolutionary background in terms of the illusion of knowledge was also the context of the types of communities where that knowledge is distributed. So when we were hunter-gatherers, our communities were a lot smaller. So like between 100 to 100 individuals. And after the agriculture and even more after the industrial revolution, that's 
completely changed. So in a more ancestral environment, you ha the, the knowledge is distributed, but also your ability to access the, that knowledge is very easy, immediate, personal. But whenever we step out of a hunter-gatherer society, that doesn't happen anymore. And, and I wonder if that contributes to the degrading of of that knowledge and our and also our confidence in that knowledge because because in both cases it's out there but in one of them it's it's a lot more real and accessible but once strangers are introduced into our social lives and experts are introduced to our social lives sure you can learn how a toilet works but you can't just ask your buddy like you you have to go to a expert on toilets and like not only is it harder it's also not something that people do like like regular people are not talking about experts i'm guessing like at least maybe maybe more like uh, how do i say it more intellectual people i guess or, or something like that i don't know the word but like regular people i don't think they talk about experts about the very specific mechanisms of a toilet for example um yeah so uh I, in in the end, I, I I think you're right that there's less certainty now than presumably there was uh, when we were hunter gatherers, but that's actually a discovery, right? It it didn't have to be that way. Um, so first of all, it's not clear how much access we had to knowledge when we were hunter gatherers, right? Because there's a lot of competition between people and people like to deceive one another sometimes um, in, in order to extract resources. And look, I, I wouldn't necessarily have this picture that when we were hunter-gatherers, we were a band of happy tribes people who only cooperated and never competed with one another. Mm -hmm. They always shared information. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't. And Yes, there was a certain immediacy of access, but, you know, life is complicated. Today, life is even more complicated. There was a time when the internet first came out, when we thought all of our information problems were solved, right? That we were going to just be able to press a button and know anything we wanted to know. Um, it was an exciting time. And, we, the, you know, there were a lot of people who sort of saw Nirvana ahead, you're right, it didn't work out that way. And it's actually very, very sad, I think, the way it's worked out. Although there are incredible resources available to us now that nobody has, has had, right? So you're right that hunter-gatherers um, could find out about you know, their equivalent of a toilet but that didn't take much because their equivalent of a toilet was something pretty simple. So life now is much more complex. But the truth is that if you really want to know how a toilet works, you know, Google it and you'd be amazed how much information you could find out in, you know, half an hour. Mm -hmm. And on a subject like that, it's probably going to be accurate information too. You know, there, there are enough cues, uh, to know if somebody's just trying to pull your leg or, you know, there's not that much motivation for people to lie to you about how toilets work. Um, so in many domains, we actually do live in an incredibly information-rich environment. I mean, I use Wikipedia constantly and everyone I know uses Google. 
constantly. And sometimes you wish they would stop, right? Just let's live with a bit of uncertainty. So there's a lot of information there that we can access incredibly easily. There is this other side to it, which is um, on certain subjects, it's just impossible to know what's true and what's not, right? Sometimes because it's hard, like how many new coronavirus cases were there today? Well, that sub, that issue is kind of fraught, right? Like I get numbers, I get numbers from the news, I get numbers from my local website, and I, I sort of generally believe them, but I understand that there's all kinds of, you know, noise associated with those numbers. And, you know, recently when I heard that uh, the, there was an executive order from the White House to force hospitals not to report their numbers of hospitalizations to the CDC, but instead to report them directly to the White House, I realized, oh, God, well, now we can't believe any number ever about hospitalizations. Um, so, you know, politics clearly enters the, the picture constantly. And you see that with fake news and, you know, the deep fakes that are starting to be created using deep uh, neural networks. And, you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of falsity, all sorts of conspiracy theories that also get perpetuated by virtue of this new technology we have. So it's, it's a complicated story. I don't think it's as simple as it's harder to get information today. It's actually much easier to get information today. It is, in certain cases, harder to discriminate truth from fiction. Um, that's true in some domains. But, you know, even there, like when I hear our beloved president utter something that's total bullshit, I feel like I can find out, or that might be total. I feel like there are ways for me to find out um, whether he's lying or not in ways that I'm relatively confident about. There are enough cues in the world. There are enough sources of credible information um, th that I generally can discern truth from falsity. Not always, and sometimes credible information sources get hijacked. Those problems have always been around. Right. Um... It's actually good that you mentioned internet because uh, I wanted to get that um, after. Um, but I think, for example, you mentioned you mentioned Trump, but I think that's not a bad. I think I don't think that's a good example because the the claims he makes a lot of times are so ridiculous that it's it it understates um, the difficulty of accessing good information. And you said, for example, that in some like we can call it more technical domains that it's easy to find information. So for example, if you want to know how a toilet works and if you visit the Wikipedia page of a toilet, you'll get a lot of information. Uh, and that's true for sure. But there's two problems, uh, extra problems to, to that, which is one, as you mentioned, uh, the fact of politics, for example. That's one reason why I really don't like politics. And one of them is because it's so divisive among, uh, among people in communities. And, and I don't like division. Uh, and the, but the other aspect that I don't like is because you're making really important decisions and those decisions have to be based on knowledge and it's knowledge that I don't have. Like I'm supposed to vote for a, an economy policy, but I know nothing about the economy, like economics. And, and, and it's, to me, it's almost repulsive that I'm making those decisions and I have 
no idea, like not even the slightest. Like I couldn't even, I, I could learn a lot just from the first 10 pages of like economics one-on-one. And I think it's the same for, for a lot of people. Uh, and so, so politics is very problematic for, for that reason. And then there's another reason that even outside of politics, I think like, just like you, I was very optimistic about uh, the internet, even though I kind of like, I'm, 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 I'm a lot younger. So I was kind of born into the era where like internet wasn't mainstream, but also had existed for a good while. Um, but, but I was really optimistic. It's like, holy crap, like everyone will have access to infinite knowledge like this. You know, it's like, it's like the typical argument that you get into friends of like you argue A and you argue B. It's like, oh, now you can just find out in the moment. Like there's no more uncertainty. But sometimes it's the case, but sometimes it isn't. And part of what humbled me the most was me trying to find out if things were true or not, even when they're not political. So for example, a lot of times, if I see something, for example, about economics, like I just said, or anthropology, for example, they're not topics that I'm familiar with. And sure, I have Google and I can search for them, but it's really hard to know what is true and what is accurate. And it's, it, and I'm not even talking about fake news. I mean, um, I can even talk about legitimate competing hypotheses. Like I just don't have the knowledge to know which one is legit or not. And a lot of times, even when I can, like you mentioned cues, which, which I think is a really good way of, of kind of grappling with this intermediary mode of like, you don't know enough, but like, you know, some, and you have cues that kind of help you guide the truth or not. So even when I have cues, I found that a lot of times they're wrong because like I have, like I see certain arguments and then, and then something rings in my head. Oh, I've read something about this. And this has explanation A of why this makes correct. But the problem is there's a lot of counter arguments to the argument A. I just don't know about them. And there's evidence against it. I just don't know about it. And even, and I also, I talked about this uh, on, on a Facebook post that, that I made. And I think this is such a huge thing about, funny enough, about the illusion of knowledge that people have, which is when you're talking about the subject, and you know a counter argument or an evidence for your case, it's your confidence on us. It's incredibly exponential. Like you get so confident because you can actually give a reason. So for example, you, you can't describe how a toilet works, for example. But if you're trying to explain why a free market is good, for example, and you know some reasons for it, like the, the basic reasons that you'd find out in the first 10 seconds of Googling, that gives you a lot of confidence. The problem is there's probably... 10 really good arguments why that's an oversimplistic uh, statement, uh, but you don't know about them. But that doesn't matter because you'll never get to the counter arguments. You're already confident that you're right because you have one argument. And this whole thing with the internet is why I'm very pessimistic about our uh, ability to sort out true knowledge or not. And uh, that it's, uh, it's kind of what I was trying to get at from the evolutionary roots, uh, because it's like we have the hunter-gatherer societies, uh, which you're right, it's, it wasn't, wasn't always cooperative, even though there were a lot more egalitarian, there, there's still some competition for sure. But then once we go back to, or rather, when we advance to agricultural societies, uh, the world gets complex, it gets more complex, and the, the experts, the ones that do have the knowledge, keep getting further and further away. Uh, but then when you jump from agriculture slash industrial society to modern internet society, that's even further. Like they're even further away. 
there is even more options of each topic that you have to sort through. And a lot of times I just feel that's, that's a sea that you can't swim. It's just too much, too much competing hypotheses, too much data that you're not familiar with. And it's just, just a whole mess. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think you're in a sense um, justifying the central thesis of our book, right? So we live that that that's the reason we live in a community of knowledge. Like what you've just said is, in some sense, reiter, reiterating the point I made about complexity, right? So yes, economics is incredibly complex. Even ballpoint pens are incredibly complex, it turns out, right? Economics is even more complicated, for sure. Um, I, so I hear your frustration, but what I'm hearing is that you're frustrated because it's hard for you to decide what the right thing is on any topic that you happen to be interested in. And um, you should be frustrated in that case because you're attempting an impossible task. Right, so there are all kinds of people who spend, who devote their entire careers to studying economics, and they disagree amongst themselves. So for you to think that you know you can spend a couple hours on the internet and de determine the truth about what the best economic system is, it's uh, it's pie in the sky. It's just not going to happen. Um, so, look, I, I think uh, it's important to distinguish different sources of uncertainty, right? Philosophers like to distinguish epistemic uncertainty from aleatory uncertainty. They're big words, but, but simple concepts. Um, so epistemic uncertainty has to do with what you don't know that you could know, right? Whereas aleatory uncertainty is about inherent randomness in the world. And... If you're trying to understand something complicated like, you know, what the best economic system is, to some, you know, one of the problems you face is that you just don't know everything that could be known. I actually don't think you could possibly know everything that could be known because there's just too much knowledge out there. There are competing perspectives and, you know, economists are going to continue to argue about these. And at some point, you just, you know, if you're voting in an election, then you just have to get into bed with one view or another, right? Um, but there's also like this fundamental uncertainty that pervades everything we do that we're just not going to get rid of. So it may be that there is no best economic system. It may be that it depends on whether there's a pandemic, right, which is a random event, a random perturbation of the system that nobody predicted. Or it might depend on, uh, you know, if you're an agrarian society or an industrial society. So there are all kinds of variables that we can't control and that uh, we, in some sense, have to know the answer to if we want full information. But we can't get full information. So we have to depend on the people around us and we have to depend on their best guess. And to be honest, you know, on issues like what's the best economic system? What's the best transportation system, right? Um, how can we best deal with climate change? I mean, all these really huge, pressing, difficult issues. I don't, you know, there, there's no single answer that is going to emerge with absolute certainty. 
There is some consensus, and it's important to, you know, recognize that consensus. Like, it's obvious to me that if we had fewer um, carbon emissions, uh, we're, we'd have a, we'll have a better future. Right? Like, I don't think anyone reasonable disagrees with that. Uh, so we can focus on the things there's consensus about. But beyond that, what we can do are, is to like vote for people who are going to be responsive to the best scientists. See, the thing is that decision makers are in the same position as you, right? They also are faced with all this uncertainty, all this epistemic certainty and all this aleatory uncertainty. And so, you know, what I want in a decision maker is not someone who says, this is the way to do things. This is the best possible method. Let's pursue it come hell or high water. What I want is a politician who tells me who their sources of influence are, and I want those sources to be credible. So I want a politician who says, I care what scientists say, and I'm gonna listen to what scientists say. And if scientists realize that, you know, if they change their mind tomorrow and discover, oh, we should wear masks instead of, you know, don't wear masks, save them for the medical health professionals, then I'll change my policy too, right? So, so you can, you know, one basis for voting, instead of saying, well, I'm going to figure out what the right answer is and choose the politician who comes closest to, uh, to, to promoting the right answer, what we can say is, I'm going to choose the politician who I think pays attention to the most credible sources of information, whose community of knowledge is the one that's the most flexible and relates most closely to the way the world actually is and shares my basic value. Right. That's, that's a really good point. And, um, and part of your answer to the knowledge illusion in the sense of its uh, negative consequences is its reliance on expertise. Um, and I would like to say something about that, which has some problems, some of them which you have already mentioned. And not in the sense that it invalidates your thesis, but I would just like your thoughts about it, which is um, it's very easy to say to listen to the experts. First of all, that has a problem, which is it's increasingly difficult to know who the, who the experts are and what's uh, an actual legitimate authority in any given field. Uh, it's still possible, but I have the feeling that it's getting increasingly hard. And, and with, the, with this virus, um, I've, I've had that, that intuition grow even more. But outside of the legitimacy of, of expertise, there's also the problem that, ex, that experts are very often wrong. And, and I don't mean that, and like I, I get the argument that it's like from a pragmatic point of view, you have to get your knowledge from somewhere. And the experts are very likely the ones that have uh, the best knowledge of whatever topic you want to find out the truth about. Um, but for example, I've, I've been listening now to an audiobook about the history of psychiatry. And it's not a new, uh, it's not a new uh, field to me. Uh, I've learned about it in the past. But even rehearing some of the problems that psychiatry has faced, it's very disturbing and sad. And the problem is those, those decisions and those recommendations were made by scientists. They were made by the experts. 
and they were wrong. They were dangerously wrong. And that's not just with psychiatry. Like, like the history of science is complete with, with these things. And I don't mean just with like a, a, a scientific revolution, Kuhnian sense. Like, I mean, in, in more practical terms of daily living. And, and for example, I think uh, how we should approach parent, parenting, for example, I think it's a good example because it's something very practical, something that has existed forever by definition. And it's something that it seems reasonable that science can tell us something about. But for a long time, uh, science and the authority and the experts have been have given us guidance to parenting that to parenting that later turned out to be completely nonsense. And so, th- th- there's a there's a, a really good argument that you should listen to experts, even even turning aside the problem of you need to figure out who a reliable expert is and the consensus, which is not always easy, but let's say it is, uh, there's an interesting problem is that there's a good chance that that expert is wrong, like especially with uh, subjects like, for example, economics, uh, politics, like there's been countless studies that a lot of times when you you look long term enough, like their future guesses are almost chance, like they're, they're almost non-existent. And you mentioned the coronavirus situation that also has been showing now. Like, I'm not trying to dismiss the, the scientific authority of it, but like so many models have, have, have been wrong. And it's hard to put blame on them because they, they have to work with the data they have available. And this is very new. But it for sure places a case on our intuition for things that deviate drastically from what we know and, and, and also builds a case for tradition, in my opinion. So how do you navigate this problem of like, you want to listen to the experts because they know more than you and you're very stupid and they're likely less stupid than you. But at the same time, they have been wrong a lot of times with very, very bad consequences. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a great point. And um, I, I don't think there's a silver bullet and, and you're, you, it's very fair that you take me to task for, um, for just appealing to expertise when when the history of expertise is so complicated. Um, so let me try to be more precise in in my um, advice for what it's worth. Uh, you, um, like there are two issues I think underlying what you're saying. One is what's an individual supposed to do, right? And then the second is what is society supposed to do? So I actually find the second one easier <laughs> than the first. So let, let me at least start there. Um, there. There are certain things where I think we can trust experts, right? So, you know, like I trust plumbers most of the time. I mean, some are charlatans, but, you know, usually my toilet's unclogged by the time the plumber leaves. And And, you know, there's also this underlying issue of, like, what else am I going to do, right? Am I not going to call a plumber? Am I going to call my mother to fix my toilet, right? That's, if you knew my mother, you would know that would not be a good idea. So to some degree, we're just faced with a lot of really hard problems in the world. And, you know, experts sometimes um, are not much better than others but they at least have some probability of being better than others. You know, like if you go to a financial advisor, for instance, right, there's all sorts of evidence that financial advisors 
um, don't really do much better than throwing darts. But at least they can tell you, if they're honest, things like you should distribute your assets in different, um, um, you know, in order, in different risk categories so that you don't lose everything in, if, if there's a bad event. Um, so often, if they're honest and intelligent, they at least can give you some hints about things you should do. I actually disagree with you about the pandemic. Yes, the models um, were not perfectly accurate in telling us, uh, you know, exactly how the virus was going to spread and how many deaths there were going to be, etc. But um, you know, I actually think in the end the epidemiological advice was pretty good. That if we honestly sheltered in place and um, you know, didn't uh, sneeze on each other, stayed away from each, wore masks, you know, did as much uh, social interaction, only as much social interaction as was necessary to stay alive, then we could actually, you know, reduce the virus to um, a large extent. And that turned out to be true. And in countries that have decent contact tracing processes in place, then there will be outbreaks, yes, but they can be controlled. You know, there's certainly costs to it. And I'm not saying that there aren't all kinds of issues. You know, how do you trade off the health of the society with the economy of the society? Well, you know, the epidemiological view is you maximize the benefits of the economy by keeping the country healthy. And I don't see any reason to think that they're wrong, right? Um, so psychiatry has a horrible history. And I think that's in large part because historically psychiatrists have essentially been conspiracy theorists, right? That is, they haven't been governed by data. So maybe instead of promoting an appeal to expertise, what we should be promoting is an appeal to science, where science means constantly evaluating whether what you're saying is right or wrong and limiting your statements to things that could be wrong, right? So, the, I mean, the problem with psychiatry, and I think this has actually changed some, although, yeah, I mean, it's still a field like many fields that are governed by ideology. Um, but to the, when, when psychiatry started really seriously paying attention to data, to the effectiveness of treatments, to whether what it was saying was true or false, then it started, you know, articulating less crap and it started doing less damage to the world. So ideology is a problem. Ideolo ideology is a problem for lay people in society and it's a problem for expert communities too, right? Scientists, philosophers, even engineers have their own ideologies about how things work. That is... And, and why is that? Well, that's because they too depend on community, right? So to say someone is an, you're not an expert on everything within your field of study. Even experts have narrow areas of specialty and even expert knowledge is represented by a community of knowledge, right? So it turns out that Einstein didn't turn physics around all by himself, right? There was, a whole field consisting of thousands of people 
whose work was actually necessary in order for Einstein to do what he did. So you have the same kinds of problems within scientific communities that you have within political communities. You know, problems of ideology, problems of depending on others who turn out not to be trustworthy or who turn out to be wrong. Problems where people are more wedded to the central ideas of their community's ideology than they are to getting things right. Try to, um, to, what you should be doing is looking for advice from the people who seem most responsive to evidence. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's very fair. Um, and um, I'm, certainly, <laughs> I'm certainly aware of, of, the, of the problem of these, these two extremes and, and how to navigate it and also the value of taking a pro pragmatic approach. You know? um, this is something I really dislike about, uh, like even though I kind of argued their position a little bit, something I really dislike about conservatives is like experts have been wrong in the past. It's like, so that we should be skeptical of them. And they have a point, but a lot of times it's not a very well-made point. Uh, and so you have to be pragmatic to some degree and you have to, and I think, even though it's kind of obvious, I think what you articulated of maybe instead of not only valuing expertise and that's it, but also what is that expertise based on? Is, is it, is it data driven uh, and stuff like that, uh, which has its own problems because data isn't just a brute fact that this has no interpretation, but it's, it's a guideline. It helps to, to whatever degree. Um, so, so that, that was, that was, that was quite good and helpful. Um, and so I don't want to take too much of your time and I had some other stuff to get into, but, uh, I know you wanted to get in, into like more pragmatic, uh, solutions to this illusion of knowledge. Well, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> no, no, but I want to talk about that as well. So it's, it's not like I'm not just doing your favor. It's actually something I want to cover as well. Um, so, so let's start with education itself. So school, uh, both like uh, for children and also higher education, like, like uh, college. So first of all, maybe it's a good place to start on what does the illusion of knowledge tell us about how education is currently then now? Um, so I think the implication of our ideas for education is that uh, we, we should think about educating communities as much as educating individuals, right? So instead of thinking about the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, we also have to think about the fact that students are social beings and they have to learn um, not only how to perform tasks themselves, but A, how to interact with others, how to respect the knowledge that others have, and um, how to uh, understand that, that, they that they're limited beings. So there's actually, uh, this is not a great insight for a lot of educational researchers, right? There have been several who have appreciated this from long ago, um, including some of, you know, the famous, like John Dewey, famous education philosopher. Um, there's been some great work. I love the work of Anne Brown, who was a um, education researcher, uh, did a lot of work in the um, 80s, 90s. Um, and she showed, for instance, that 
if you get kids to learn in groups where each one feel has an area of expertise and um, is sort of the local source of expertise within the group, uh, that the the groups not only produce better projects, but each kid actually learns more about everything that they're studying and not just their area of expertise. So she had some pretty solid data showing that group learning is, um, is more effective than individual learning. Uh, and also something that I, th I think it's quite relevant. For example, you mentioned the, the example of, of Einstein, for example, that a lot of times in our, uh, this is kind of like a product of modernism and individualistic uh, culture that we kind of think of Einstein as like this really isolated individual that kind of make him break through out of, out of his sheer genius. And that happens to some degree. Um, but like, for example, Newton was quite isolated, even though he still communicated with some other colleagues. Uh, but generally speaking, it is a collaborative, Effort and I think this also plays with uh, plays with this um, change in society that we're seeing that it's increasingly more connected and more complex. Uh, so, for example, even though like the the breakthrough of a single individual individual is kind of a myth, uh, when you kind of look at the lower level of like you can say lesser discoveries, uh, it was quite common in the past. Uh, uh, to see to see that like someone made an important insight into a field even if it not was even even if it wasn't like a complete paradigm shift like it was one individual but now because the subjects are increasing complex like almost everything works in teams for example it was very common in the past that a paper had one author for example like someone just wrote a paper like increasingly now like that that's i mean it still happens but like a lot of times it's in teams and uh, I've, I've seen some papers of like uh, physics has this a lot, for example, when there's like 40, 50 people of like three continents, like the collaboration is insane. And that really plays out to this, 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 this group effort that, that you think that, that you're alluding to. And I think that's really important because, because that type of education not only produces better results due to due to being take, taking advantage of the knowledge distributed in the group, but also actually prepares you to the real world. You're not going to be individual isolated. Yeah. So the fact that our world is getting increasingly connected and, and complex, that also plays a lot into this, well, reflecting education on, the, on that front as well. Not only trying to take advantage of that uh, knowledge in the community, but also because that's how you're going to operate as a, as an individual. Yeah, it turns out that across fields, the, the average number of authors per paper is, is on the increase. There are these bizarre cases, like the discovery of the Higgs boson involved, you know, huge numbers of authors. Um, but even in math, uh, which is sort of famous for having solitary authors, I think there are more and more um, joint papers being written. So, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you're saying. I, I think that um, it's helpful to distinguish two notions of taking advantage of your community in order to do science or solve a problem. One is being a good collaborator, right? So interacting with others well, appreciating what you don't know, um, interrogating others, uh, integrating what they have to say into your worldview, trying to 
take a sort of multilateral integrative approach to thought, right? Um, being nice. I mean, collaborating well is a really important quality. But a, another one is being willing to outsource your thinking to others or and doing that well, right? So what I'm distinguishing here is uh, working well with others who you're explicitly working with, people in your group, versus taking advantage of the full body of knowledge that's out there in our culture. And I think that those are actually separate skills, right? So I'll call the first one collaboration and the second outsourcing. So it, it's great to you know, be able to read other people's emotions and be empathetic and understand what they say. That, that helps you collaborate. But there's this other skill of understanding what you don't know and how to go about filling in those gaps that isn't about empathizing with other people, right? It's about um, not having, having enough intellectual humility that you're open to very different sources of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That, that distinction is, is, is important uh, because it, it highlights different aspects that's if you just use one term, you kind of might navigate towards one or the other. You kind of shun one. Um, a connection that, I, that I've been thinking about in, in relationship to, to this topic, and I wanted to know your opinion. And I'm not sure if there's actually a legitimate connection. Maybe there isn't. But um, you know the work of, uh, I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, Hugo Mercier? The Enigma of Reason? Hugo Mercier, yeah. Okay. I knew I would mess it up. <laughs> um, so he also argues, just like you argue, of a, of a division of cognitive labor. But it seems that the purpose is, is quite different because in yours, it's more of a sense that the knowledge is outsourced, but you're not trying to, how do I say it? It still has like a, it still has like a, a concern with truth like there's no it's just that the truth is distributed across the community like right. it doesn't matter if it's in my brain or my cousin's brain for example right but he argues for a division of cognitive labor that is quite different because there it's more like and, and the knowledge is also distributed but it's more like i'm arguing just to convince my particular case and um i wonder he calls it the the my side bias which i think is quite uh, quite fitting and I was wondering if there's a, a connection on that division of labor. And also, how does that, how does, I'm not sure if it's his hypothesis, but the hypothesis he argues for of like a very uh, argumentative uh, nature to, to, to reasoning. Uh, yeah. How does that play with, with the knowledge illusion? Because in, the, in, in, in like your book, the knowledge illusion is like something you take advantage of, but in like he, in, in like his point of view, uh, it's like it's actually good that th there's a that someone might have someone might not have the knowledge that you have, and then when you argue for your side, they actually well you can convince them a lot easier, and so it's it's kind of an ex exploitation of the fact that the the knowledge is distributed. Yeah. Is, is that is that far fetched? Or do you think there's a connection? Um, yeah, no, no. So I, I think what um, 
so a lot a lot of these ideas uh hugo um published in this book he wrote with dan sperber uh a, a couple of years about the same time actually our book came out and and we wrote joint um reviews of each other's books so oh. mercier and sperber wrote a book wrote a review of our book and it was published alongside a review that phil and i wrote of their book i think this the american journal of psychology maybe Ooh, i might have that wrong but i think that's where those were. um so yeah there there's a certainly some deep commonality to the idea i think we both both books uh represent the notion that um, thinking is a social process um, and you know they both kind of talk in different ways about a community of knowledge so they have that in common um, you know what what they wrote about their major criticism of our book was that we assumed that people are more cooperative than they than Mercier and Sperber think people actually are, right? So they take a kind of more competitive view of human nature. And the form of distributed cognition that they argue for is one where people take different perspectives and argue out those perspectives, um, the assumption being that, you know, the one that's the most forceful, the most compelling, consistent with the most evidence will win. So there's sort of an evolution of ideas that occurs through this competitive process. And, uh, you know, I, that, that sounds perfectly reasonable to me. I, I think that that's one of the dynamics that occurs within a community of knowledge. Um, but I, I think that they are underestimating the degree to which people do collaborate. That is, you know, you and I right now um, are trusting each other. Like, you know, I... I, I guess I should be worrying that you're going to edit at everything I say and, you know, take out all of my negations and all of my qualifications and you're in a position to, like, make me look like a total jerk, right? And public put something online that makes me look like an absolute idiot. But I'm assuming you won't do that. And most of my interactions uh, are like that. I assume that, you know, people want to help me, want to achieve what I want to achieve, whether it's crossing the road or selling me groceries or figuring out who to vote for or, you know, what the secret of life is. Um, or, you know, when the plumber comes over, there's like, I don't see competition between us. I see a trade, right? I'm going to give the plumber money and the plumber's going to give me knowledge and skills. So it just strikes me that the kind of foundation of the community of knowledge is the fact that we're all in it together and we all kind of see it that way. And we share this, this intention to, to maximize the amount of knowledge we have available. Like if you look at Wikipedia, yeah, there are certainly arguments on Wikipedia and there are people who use Wikipedia for political ends. But for the most part, what you find are people who have information and want to share it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so it just, it feels to me that that's the firmament, that's the foundation upon which our knowledge is built and yes, we do have to worry about competitive little battles we get into. 
And moreover, I, I, I'm certainly willing to accept uh, Hugo Mercier's claim that um, some of those battles have this very useful effect of um, letting, you know, where the winner is the last one standing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that always true? Well, obviously not. I mean, there are all kinds of ideological battles within society that don't seem to get resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I, I think there are different perspectives on a right. similar thing, which is how knowledge is distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't invalidate your points, but I think part of the problem of this, like, uh, this kind of comes down to a more, how do I, how do I say it? Like, how do, you, how do you tend to view human nature in a more positive or negative light? But one of the problems uh, about... When, when talking about human nature, and this this goes back to evolutionary psychology, is that there's a difference between you know what they call the the proximate causes versus ultimate causes. So, for there to be competition, it doesn't have to be experienced as competition. And so, for example, something that I really liked about their book is that they are they have this they, they make this argument that uh, when you argument arguing arguing uh, for your case, you make like the the case that you think will convince other people, regardless of if it's actually true or not. Like you're just trying to get the bare minimum. And, and you know, you can say that, well, that's a pretty, pretty shitty thing to do, you know? <laughs> like you should, you should care about the truth. You shouldn't just try to convince people. But something that I noticed is that I started to pay really close attention to the types of arguments that I was making. Uh, and like if, I, like if my girlfriend asked me something, for example, and, uh, and I would give a reason, I would say, is that really the reason though? And like an exercise that, that, that I used to do when I was reading the book and shortly after is, okay, so if that reason didn't exist, would, would you still have that opinion or would you still give the same answer? And a lot of times I found out that that reason was, it was partially valid, but it's like, it's not central at all. It's not foundational. Like if it wasn't that reason, I would give another reason. And so I, I experienced like the, that's what they argue about uh, argument over truth, let's say, was, was certainly valid from my experience, but it wasn't, I wasn't trying to cheat my girlfriend. Like it wasn't the competition in, in, in the sense that you're describing. So th- there's that additional problem, which is some of these things go kind of in the background. It doesn't have to be a direct competition between individuals. It's just, it's just psychological processes that have evolved over time. Yeah, so what, um, their, their book does uh, do that very well, absolutely. Um, what it sounds to me like you're describing is motivated reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. So one, one reason that, so, so the fundamental claim of motivated reasoning is that the conclusion comes before the argument. And there's no question in my mind that that's very, very often true, right? Sometimes, um, if you find you're not making sense, right, or you see an obvious contradiction, then you're forced to change the conclusion. But in domains in which there's enough uncertainty that you can reason your way around things, that very rarely happens, right? And that's why it's just almost impossible to change the mind of someone who feels strongly about some hot button political topic right? Or to change the minds of a faculty member who comes to a faculty meeting with their mind made up about something. I've never seen a faculty member change their mind about anything. Um, 
and and so the way I would describe that is, you know, you come to your conclusion. How do you come to your conclusion? Well, sometimes it's just your interest, right? Or something that you, you're just trying to be consistent with something you've always said. More often than not, I think you inherit your conclusion from your community, right? So if somebody makes the claim to me about whether one should wear masks or not, you know, I'm a solid liberal. I think my community says you should wear a mask. I believe in mask wearing. And that's how I start the conversation. Um, and, and so we inherit this, these views from the community and then we have to justify them. So we find reasons to justify them. Often we find those reasons in the community too, right? Like it might be as simple as so-and-so, like Dr. Fauci believes it and, and Dr. Fauci knows, right? He's the world expert on this. But sometimes we generate um, other sort of justifications or rationalizations. So the claim is essentially that the reason you're generating is really a justification for the belief rather than an argument for the belief. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I'd say we do that more often than not. Right. Um, coming back more directly to, to, to the knowledge illusion, something that I, I wondered uh, when, when being exposed to this idea is that, for example, when, when you kind of expose people's ignorance, uh, their confidence drops. And uh, I wondered if how, how stable is that drop in confidence, because yeah. parts because this thing that we that we were talking just just previously of yeah. of like that we have uh, a core belief like the motivational reasoning and then you kind of add reasoning on top, uh, which is like very very well expressed by Jonathan Haidt. Um, so because the feel that I have is that if you expose people to to their ignorance, their confidence drops. But then because that a lot of times that's not the reason for our beliefs anyway. Like it just, their confidence just rises again. Has, has there been any work of trying to look more long-term how this works? Yeah, so I have some unpublished experiments and the sad truth is that it's very short-term. It, it's very labile. So you can convince people that they don't understand as well as they thought they did um, simply by asking them to generate an explanation. But, you know, even 10 minutes later, like as soon as they're thinking about something else, uh, um, then their confidence, uh, their, their sense of their own understanding um, shoots right back up. Huh. Um, I did have a student who um, did her undergrad thesis looking at whether you can prolong the effect through social proof. So what she did was she went, she took people through the procedure. So they state their sense of understanding. Then they explain it, realize they can't. Their understanding is, is their sense of understanding is lower. You've punctured their illusion. And then you immediately tell them, you, you show them some social media. What she did was she showed them some social media quotes where other people were saying, have you ever had the experience of thinking you understand something and then tried to explain it and realize you didn't understand it? In other words, the experience of having their illusion punctured was reflected by, you know, two or three other people. So they realized that it wasn't just them, but an actual phenomenon. 
And when she did that, then uh, it lasted longer. Like we didn't test it over extended periods. We just tested it over a short period, but it lasted now for that short period. Right. So, so the, the implication is that if you want to reduce people's hubris, increase their intellectual humility, it's not good enough to show them what they don't know, right? You have to show what they don't know and then make them feel like this is a common sense, that often people feel this way, that we all together live in this illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the relevant experiments haven't been run, but those are the experiments I think we need to try to get some lasting um, influence on people's willingness to admit what they don't know. Uh-huh. That's very interesting. Uh, although, although what you said about the, um, the confidence uh, dropping effect disappearing is very disappointing because when I asked that question in my mind, I had like a week or something. No. So you're saying 10 minutes. I'm like, well, it's a lot worse than I thought. Sorry, the, tr- tr- the truth is hard often, you know. Yeah. There's another place. Um, something else that I wondered is that I know that this knowledge illusion is is not specific to a certain demographic uh, population. So it's not like a political thing. It's not a nationality thing. But because this is so entrenched in the sense of community. Uh, I wondered if there has been any work that has looked about, not in the sense if the knowledge illusion exists or not, but in the sense if there's variation of it between, for example, individualist cultures versus collectivist cultures. Yeah. You know, I just, um, next week, a student of mine is reporting a study we did in China. It wasn't on... um, the illusion of understanding per se, it was on a different but related phenomenon. So I've been studying this phenomenon that I call contagious understanding, where you ask people, you tell people that scientists have discovered something and they fully understand how it works. How well do you understand it? Versus another group, you say, scientists have discovered this thing and they have no idea how it works. How well do you understand it? Right? So you're asking people for their personal understanding, and what you're varying is whether other experts understand it or not. And what we find very reliably is that people say that they themselves understand things better when the scientists understand than when the scientists don't, which you know could be interpreted as sort of direct evidence for this community of knowledge that you know, we don't even distinguish the scientist's understanding from our own. If they understand, then in a sense, I do understand it because they understand it, right? Um, so what we did was look for this effect in China, and we found just as big an effect in China as, as we get in the States. Hmm. Interesting. Would you, would you have hypothesized before that they would have a greater trust You know, I didn't, I really didn't know. I, I thought it could go both ways. Um, this was, uh, you know, true experiment, exploratory experimentation. You know, you could, you could make the argument that if it's a collectivist society, people are already aware of the fact that their knowledge depends on other people and therefore they correct for it. And so oh. wouldn't find this effect. Um, 
Or you might argue that uh, because they're a collectivist society, they don't in any way distinguish the knowledge that's inside their skull from the knowledge that exists in the collective, in the community. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we would find an even, big, an even bigger effect. Right. That's very interesting. I didn't think about it. Uh, and, and, and now I'm wondering that maybe instead of not having a difference and there's this two competing um, drives that might drive it towards a higher or lower illusion of knowledge, I wonder if there's actually both and they're actually canceling each other out. That, 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 that yeah, would be quite interesting. Um, so I don't want to take more of your time. This has gone for a long time. But I would like to ask you one last question, which is, you wrote, the, the book is quite old. Like when I initially saw that the book was... 2017. Yeah, 17. 17. All oh, right, right. So, um, so I, I had the impression that it was actually a bit older than that. But I was wondering if since the book came out, if there is any study since then that you really enjoyed and you thought it was really insightful about this illusion of knowledge? Um, well, there have been, um, there are a variety of studies uh, that are kind of tangential. So some of the work I've continued to do with Phil is on um, what drives people's attitude. And um, some of the stuff that I have found most interesting is the a hint of evidence that um, one reason people suffer from the illusion is because we tend to think about things in terms of our fundamental protected values. And what the illusion of explanatory depth does is that it forces people to think in terms of consequence, right? So if you take any political issue or moral issue, you can either frame it in deontologically or in terms of protected values or sacred values, right? Like think about a religious, like, you know, if if you think a particular shrine is sacred, then that's a kind of fundamental value about that shrine that isn't based on an analysis of consequences. It isn't based on, is this thing going to work or not? It's just right versus wrong. So Americans have this habit of moralizing, right? You take any issue like gun control, and Americans have this habit of, of making the judgment based on sacred values. Individuals have a right to liberty and, you know, protection of their family. Or, you know, we live in a society where people are getting killed. And so if we want to limit the consequences of this, um, of, of guns, then we have to control them. So one side you have people with these basic fundamental values, and on the other side you have people who are engaged in a consequentialist analysis, right? Or what you might call a utilitarian analysis of what outcomes uh, are going to arise and, and whether those outcomes are good or bad. So one way to think about the illusion of explanatory depth is that we're getting people to think in consequentialist terms rather than in terms of sacred values. And that has the benefit of making people appreciate how much they don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? So a little bit of data we have shows that when you frame an issue in terms of sacred values, people think it's less tractable. There's less likelihood of compromise. They think the issue is simpler. Whereas when you frame the same issue in terms of in consequentialist terms, um, then uh, they they 
think there is more room for compromise. They appreciate the complexities of it and they think they don't understand it quite as well. Right. Uh, when you mentioned like the, the Americans having this like very uh, sacred value based uh, political opinions, for example, what, what are you comparing it to? So who are the population that is that doesn't have this core? Well, I grew up values? in Canada. Huh. And um, I don't find Canadians moralize things quite as much as Americans. Mm -hmm. right? So I think it's more natural to have a debate about guns that's about, you know, the effectiveness of policy. And, you know, will more people or less people die? Mm -hmm. Whereas in America, the debate takes on this sort of moralistic turn much more quickly. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting because when, when I think about like the sacred values um, type discussion versus consequence, I actually think a lot about, for example, Jonathan's height work that Americans are actually um, less traditional in the sense of holding values sacred and are more open to discussion. But when you compare it to actually like, like India or China or something like that, uh, the Americans actually seem very permissible, like they're one of the most liberal societies in the world. So it's actually funny. I understand where you, where you come from, but but to me, it's funny that you hold America as this like sacred value community uh, where you can actually yeah, well, argue the opposite. Uh, well, I was comparing it to Canada and to Europe. I wasn't mm -hmm. comparing it to China and India. But um, yeah, I don't know enough about China and India to say. I mean, there are clearly some very prominent sacred values in both those places, especially India, that come to mind. Um, on a sort of day-to-day -day basis, when it comes to issues like gun control, um, I wonder uh, whether there are, it's not obvious to me what type of reasoning one would expect in those places compared to the States. I don't know, maybe you have some data on that that I mm -hmm. haven't seen. Uh, <laughs> I was just speculating. Uh, so that's a good place to end. Uh, I'm sorry that I took so much of your time already. Well, uh, it's a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. Uh, also, uh, I'm sorry that I think I talked a bit too much. I usually try the guests to speak more, but uh, I really like these topics. And it's not, it's not the type of conversation that I can usually have because they're technical to some degree. Um, so it's, it's a rare opportunity to engage in this type of discussion. So I get a bit passionate about it. Um, but it was it was really fun. Uh, I learned a lot, and I think I think your work is fantastic. And for those that haven't uh, read the book, uh, I highly recommend getting it. Um, even like if even if the even if you feel that you got the main uh, premises the premise of the book, uh, it goes into a lot more detail. Uh, there has has countless experiments of uh, showing each facet of this knowledge illusion and it's really worth uh, checking out. And so thank you again. Well, thanks so much, Tiago. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And awesome. good luck with everything. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. Bye.